This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihue from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. What's up, everybody out there in listener land? This is episode 60 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We're back. We had a couple weeks off, but we got a fantastic show for you this week. I can thank my co-host for getting this one set up. But, you know, I guess in addition to thanking him, I should welcome him to the show. So, Steve, what's going on? Hey, Tucker. Good to be back on the show. We've got more rain. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for spring and I'm ready for some sunshine. I'm feeling it in my business. It's just we're, we're ready for some birds chirping and some green grass and some flowers blossoming and a little bit more activity. We're starting to see some momentum building a little bit. It keeps trying. It keeps trying. And then, you know, you, it's like one step forward, three quarters of a step back coming out of this long dreary, cold, wet winter. <laughs> I don't know what the numbers were, but I think we were the wettest February ever, which probably had a spike in our local meth use, I would imagine. But that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, it's one of the, like yourself, I think, Tucker, I've lived in Oregon my entire life, pretty much. And it's, it's one of the drearier ones. And just not like monster events, but just repetitive events of cold and snow and rain. And I'm ready for it to end. So yeah, me too. We've been talking about it a lot. But besides the weather, we've got a fantastic guest this week. But before we jump in with him, what's been going on with you over the last week real quick? Yeah, yeah. I'm excited for our guest as well. He's a he's a valuable partner here at, of ours at Premier Property Group. But, you know, a couple things. I was just going to talk about one thing on as a broker and one as a brokerage. On the broker side, this happened a couple weeks ago. It was the first time it's ever happened to me. One of my showing agents was accused of stealing some golden earrings, some diamond earrings. Mm. I got a phone call one morning and she was like, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe this. The listing agent just called me. Both her and my buyer's agent were on the phone. We did a conference call and said that the listing agent, who sounded sheepish in the process, I think she knew she had some weird sellers. That became apparent. She just said, they're saying that some diamond earrings were stolen out of the, the master bathroom, that they were on the counter. We didn't even go in the master bathroom. In fact, I watched my clients. I normally don't you know, hover over my clients, but in this case, we were together throughout the entire property, and they never even went into the master bathroom. They didn't even like it. So that happened. We kind of talked about it. I said, if it goes anywhere, let me know. We'll get you know our reviewing brokers involved. Sure enough, she got a phone call from the police a couple days later. They did a real quick you know, phone interview of sorts, not accusatory at all, kind of acted like this happens a decent amount. And they didn't even reach out to the clients. At that point, we got our reviewing brokers involved, but really didn't go anywhere. I mean, it, it was pretty mind boggling how, how it all happened. Nothing really came of it. The The police kind of thought that the, the seller was, you know, maybe grabbing at straws trying to, I don't know what they had going on. But so that was a lot of excitement that I could have done without, but <laughs> yeah, that's a uh, time suck with sketchy people, likely on the seller side. So. Yeah. On the brokerage side, we're just, we're expanding all, several of our key offices, our Lake Oswego office. We're, we're in negotiations on a space across the hall that should add about 30, 40% more space here, which as our corporate headquarters is definitely needed. And is also just a great area in the Metro area. 
something we've been wanting and looking for for a while. We finally had a vacancy come across our desks here recently nearby, so we're on that. Same with Clackamas. There's a vacancy right there on the ground floor of where our current office space is, and so we're about doubling that office. Clackamas has just such a great presence, and we're excited to be adding some some more agents and, and some more room there. And then the same thing with Gresham. The Gresham office, if you recall, Tucker, it's only about a year old, not even a year yet, but we've already filled it up and we've got several big teams we're talking to and some great agents out there. So we're looking across the hall. Fortunately, all three of those spaces have the opportunity to grow out the offices by adding a suite very, very close right across the hall, really. So that's kind of what we have going on. How about you? Sounds like you guys are on the path to world domination still, which is, (laughs) you know, that's cool to see. So. You know, for me, we got a couple cool things going on. You know, markets bananas. We got a call from a guy yesterday. You know, the market's crazy when a guy calls you. He knows he has the teardown. He sees what one of the biggest builders in town paid for the teardown next door, and he throws a hundred thousand dollars on what he wants for it. And then he goes on to tell us that there's 19 Douglas fir trees on the property. It's in Lake Oswego, but the city is is more lenient on cutting trees now than they were in the past. So he says. So it's not a real big deal. So. <laughs> You know, the market's crazy when people are asking those prices and they they think 19 trees on their property is not a big deal, most of which would have to be cut for a new home. So it's pretty bananas out there right now. That's for sure. I'm actually starting my own new home project on Douglas Circle, which is I'm really excited about that. uh, We're finally breaking ground on. We tore down the old house this week and, you know, that's going to be a really cool place. And then lastly, on the 13th, 14th and 15th of this month, we are officially shooting our pilot for a show that actually- Thanks. It's it, I guess no congratulations is necessary yet. <laughs> I, you know, I have my vision. The production company agrees with it. They're putting their money where their mouth is. But obviously, I have to convince the network, which is doesn't need a whole lot of convincing. But it'll be a, a big cable network and not your not what you're thinking. It's not on HGTV. So it's not your typical husband wife type thing. It's it's much more about the business and just a much more realistic approach to real estate. So if we get that show done, I think it'll be a hit. I think it'll be awesome. But we're shooting the pilot here a week after next, so it'll be pretty cool. I'll be awaiting my cameo. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they want to see all aspects, right? They want to see all the layers of the onion, and this is part of it. Cool. Well, good stuff there. Good stuff there. Yeah, very cool. uh, Those are the highlights. So so, before I ramble on too much, why don't you bring in our guest, and let's, let's get to it this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're fortunate to have with us today Richard Mario. He is a partner at Buckley Law. He's also our preferred partner for legal counsel here at Premier Property Group. I personally have used Richard multiple times. Anytime, usually it's not always fun when you're when you're when you're calling the attorney, but it's a necessary. I don't want to say evil because he's a great <laughs> guy, but it's a necessary component of the business. When things, and you could do everything right, it's not necessarily your fault. When things just start to go a little bit towards off the rails, you bring in the big guns, and Richard Mario is definitely that. Those of our listeners who are on the Facebook Masters group, you will be familiar with Richard Mario. He's the voice of the legal world oftentimes there. He chimes in, and when he does, people listen because he knows his stuff, and he's just a, a great guy. And he's he's very, I have to say, Richard, you are very giving with your time and your thoughts on the master's group. I have yet to get a bill from you, nor have any of the other members of the master's group there. So thank you for that on behalf of everybody in that group. And welcome to the show. Good morning, everybody. That's It's good to hear that. I, I want to compliment Steve. He calls me before this way out of hand. And usually with a little coaching, a little thought, we can bring everything back on the rails and keep the transaction moving without without the litigation. When litigation breaks out, then then everybody's unhappy. 
Yeah, we've never had to go that far thus far, so thankfully. So the reason we brought Richard on the show, he was down in our beautiful new Lloyd District office, I want to say about two, three weeks ago, as was I, and I. we've talked about it on the show, I've got an office space down there, and I spend about, oh, 5th to 25% of my time there in that office. And he was there one day, and we we started chatting for a bit, and we ended up talking for about 30, 40 minutes. I still haven't got that bill yet. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> but one of the things we were talking about was he said, this is going to be, and I'm, I'm marginally quoting him here. He, he probably said it better than I'm going to say, but he said this, he thinks this could be the next big thing, the next big wave of problems and challenges that hit the realtors in our industry as far as litigation, as far as accusations, as far as just ickiness. And what he said it was, was elder, I guess the technical word would be elder abuse, or basically the the taking liberties with the older generation. We've all seen and heard those stories. There's been several on the master's group, but there was one that I remember pretty distinctly about a year, year and a half ago, where somebody had put an elderly person into a listing contract, got it into got it into escrow. I think they were representing possibly both sides. And then kids, as is often the case, I'm sure, Richard, kids kind of jump into the picture, start accusations, start flying that you were taking advantage of this person who's not really cognitive and aware of what they're doing. And it can be really, really icky. So Richard said he has represented several parties in the last year on this matter, and he sees it only getting worse. So we brought him on here. I coaxed him into joining us so that he can tell us some of the subject matter, some of the examples, some best practices on how to avoid this situation and avoid problems in this situation. And so we're going to let you run with it from here, Richard. Fire away. Tell us a little bit about this subject and your experience well, with it. I think the scientific studies have demonstrated that everybody's going to get older. And if you live long enough, you'll become what under the statute is an elder person. And that, interesting enough, is at age 65. Then the statute talks about you can abuse elders financially, mentally, and physically. And there's a special statute then that says if you do those things and we and you're accused of those and found to have done those, you can pay triple damages plus attorney's fees. And it becomes a real mess because it starts with the first question, is the person 65 or older? And then there's the presumption that they must be more susceptible to influence or undue influence and everybody has to start being careful. The traditional thinking and was that, well, it's going to be a relative or someone just hired to care for them. And that's how the initial cases started, was that they, they would have a caregiver come and take care of them and then take advantage of them by, by taking their jewelry or selling their stocks or just even taking their money. And then when they passed away, the kids or the other heirs would come in and say, well, what happened to all this? What happened? And they would be, have found abuse and undue influences. Another way, just from family members, you have the, the, the second marriage and the stepkids come in and, and try to take over the estate of the, the people that passed away, but they've been influenced by, by everybody. So when I look for, when I, I'm very committed and do a lot with the real estate industry, I look for how is all this going to eventually affect the real estate industry generally and the real estate brokers specifically. And, and when Steve and I had that conversation downtown the other day, it was kind of on the heels of a the culmination of a lot of events, including the settlement of one of the cases that we had, about how brokers can get into a nightmarish situation. Everybody recalls, I think, a couple, three years ago, 
if you don't let me just remind that, that there was a case where a happened to be a real estate broker wanted the land next to him so it wouldn't be developed went to the people said we'll offer it and we won't develop it until after you pass away kind of thing and bought it at a very cheap price people came in and said oh you you abused them and they wound up giving the property back to these people and and that made the papers and i think the Real estate, the real estate agency looked at this person to see whether her license should be sanctioned. And I remember that she, one too. She had to leave the company she was with because they didn't like what was going on and the publicity and whatnot. So there's a lot. That was a huge issue. That was for me to start. Well, this is going to get worse. So what we look at first is how can brokers financially abuse somebody or undue influence them as they're trying to sell their house? And this is an extreme example, I think. But in the case that we are looking at was broker was contacted by an elderly woman, under statutory elderly, but over 70. I've lived in my house for 40 years. It's time for me to sell. It's two stories. It's too big for me. Could you help me? Broker goes into help mode like you all do. You've asked for my help. You specifically invited me to your home. Let me keep in touch with you. When you're ready to sell, we'll work at it. Gave her a, a price, told her some things that she could fix up and it could increase the price. And mentioned that this house might be coming on the market during one of her, her uh, in-house broker meetings. Really common. Another broker goes, oh, I have somebody looking for a house in that area. The house is not even listed. So now you have an unlisted house with an offer coming in, which was rejected. That all seems good, right? We waited a couple months, waited over a month because she said, well, my, my cousin wants to buy it or my relative wants to buy it. If they don't, then you can have it. A month later, they don't buy it. So another offer comes in. Agent goes out and spends seven hours going through all the paperwork. Steve knows, Tucker knows how much paperwork there is to get through a listing, all the disclosures. The broker testified that she read every word of every document to this elderly person. The elderly person, by the way, had been a state employee, had retired from the state of, state of Oregon, giving grants to needy people. So she was used to paperwork. She was just over 65 and needed to have all this and the broker said i'll take the time and make sure i read every word and you understand everything or we'll stop signs the listing agreement signs all the disclosures and the offer that that came with it signs the offer acknowledged that she signed everything except for the offer i didn't intend to sell my house that was her, her one comment and that started the lawsuit and how soon scientists... after richard Excuse how me? soon after well procedurally let me usually in these cases there's an arbitration clause so she wouldn't come to closing. Buyer came to me. I said, well, we'll just we'll offer mediation arbitration. She came to neither. So you're talking 30 days in. We've got an arbitration set. She declines this. And before the arbitration date comes, she has a lawyer's file a lawsuit on her for elder abuse, trying to take it out of the arbitration process. And that is possible. So in the ORA forms, we're all protected as agents that between ourselves and our clients and the other agents that all disputes will be figured out in mediations. Are you saying when the elder abuse situation comes into play, that can kick it out of there? Yes. And what the, the claim in that case was because this person was elderly and had been abused by this broker, that the contract was no good. And if the contract's no good, then you, A, don't have a sale. And they also specifically said that even if the contract's good, the idea that I waived my right to a jury trial is bad. So they said, contract's bad, but if the contract's still good and I have this on my home, I'm not bound by the arbitration clause. I can Got still it. Go. Got it. So yeah. it was a, it, so we wound up in court and 
tens of thousands of dollars of attorney's fees spent by the buying and the selling brokers had separate attorneys. Let me tie up a couple of loose ends for our listeners and just for myself too. You guys are obviously more intimately involved in this and I, I think I got a pretty good idea, but I'm trying to look at kind of between the lines here in terms of motivation for the seller, right? Like why is it that the seller all of a sudden decided that she doesn't want to sell her home? And you're saying, so it was before closing. So it was like 30 days in after the initial paperwork and acceptance was had, but before the actual closing on the property. Correct. Okay. So my guess is that number one, either she thought she could get more money for it or number two is she just at the last second changed her mind, decided she didn't want to sell her home. You know, obviously the the story is she didn't know what she was doing if she didn't want to sell her home. I don't know if she sold it now or not, or if she, if she probably wouldn't do that because that would pose some red flags, right? In terms of, you know, if she sold it for, she could probably get more money for it now than she could a couple of years ago or whenever this was. But there's probably two things there. One is she just changed her mind last second. And two is she thought she could get more money for it. So I, I'm betting those are the driving forces beyond well, just being and, old and not knowing what she's doing. And those would be unusual forces, right? You don't have to be elderly right. to want more money for it. And elderly, they have buyer's remorse or seller's remorse. It happens all right. the time. But because she's over 65, she had this extra angle on it. As my clients exited the property for the very first time at doing their walkthrough for their personal inspection, the listing agent came out and said, she doesn't want to sell to you. She wants me to put it on the market to see if you can get more money. Okay, so there's there's the true... I was just trying to find the true motivation. And I, I imagine that was it because nine out of 10 <laughs> times, that's what it becomes. Either the neighbor talks to her or a family member or somebody at, you know, bingo says that they, you know, some of the house down the street sold for 50,000 more. And so it gets people thinking and, and it kind of gets the wheels turning and, and then things like this happen. I think that's exactly right. Richard, there was no kids involved, right? No children. Yeah. She, she had children, but they weren't close to her and they didn't appear... Typically, if kids are, motiv- are motivating people, they come to everything and you see a lot of them around. In this case, we didn't see your kids around at all. Would you say that's a best practice in these situations is to try to at least at some point reach out to a kid, just say, hey, I'm excited to be working with your mom or dad and wanted to introduce myself, maybe even follow it up with an email so that there's some kind of paper trail or, or documentation showing you reached out to them? I agree that a kid... Somebody else should be involved, somebody who's also not, someone who's less than 65 years old, so you don't have that, you're not abusing two people now. How you do that, I think, Steve, that's one way. I, I think kind of family-wise, it's, I think, having the, in this case, the seller invite their kids or their, or their friend or somebody into the situation. Because, you know, if you invite some kids in, well, that's the least favored kid, that's not going to help. But, but if, if the mom chooses, I want this person involved to help me and you as a broker, a best practice might be, look, you're elderly, there's elder abuse law, and I want to make sure that you have second opinions on things from somebody. Could you tell me who that is? And I'll, I'll start setting up meetings with all three of us, and I won't ask you to sign anything unless they're there. Who would that be? Get that. I think that's a going to be a necessary practice. I think between 65 and 70, you have, have a, a window where people are very cogent. Everybody talks. And what do we have? Mandatory retirement of 70 in state agencies now, and so those kind of things. And so... You would think up to 70, that's pretty good. I think when I start seeing clients myself, as well as brokers seeing sellers or buyers even, buyers are on the other side of that, 70 and over, they need to start thinking, are we having good days and bad days? Who's going to be involved in this? I want a second set of opinions on this. And I want something in writing from them. That's mm-hmm. the other practice I want. I want to mention, Steve, is that if the person is going to be involved, 
you want to have them have them involved, have them involved in writing, saying I'm involved to help them do this. Thank you for you know that kind of thing, and so that there's a, a documentation of it. Well, because if there's and, a problem, and, you want it to be provable. And I will say, I mean, there's often times where they are very cognitive. So even just by having reached out to the kids and then maybe, again, documenting that somehow in an email that you can put in the file, you've given them the opportunity to say, whoa, no, I need to be involved. And if they say, oh, you know, go for it. Yeah, I'm glad you're helping mom or dad. Or they don't say anything. That's kind of a almost a, a green light. Like, yeah, the kids are saying mom and dad are aware and they're ready to do this on their own. I mean, my dad just sold a house. He's 70 years old and he didn't, you know, we talked about a few things. It's out in McMinnville's with another agent in our company. We talked about a few things, but he's he's very, very capable of facilitating a transaction. And I would go so far as to say there's probably a lot of people, like you said, in that 65 to 70, even maybe into the early 70s that, are, that don't need the kids to be at every meeting. But at least by having reached out to the kid or the child and made them aware of the transaction, you can document that they had every opportunity to jump in if they felt that was needed. And, and you've documented whether the person who's over 65 wants somebody involved. That's really, I don't want my kids involved is a, is okay. That's proof that I tried and I couldn't get somebody involved. Or I think that's exactly. Yeah. I have a personal story. My mom was 79 or 80 when she sold her last house. And she told me, because I went to see her a lot, and she came, when I went by, she said, well, I'm, I'm moving. I'm, well, when? Saturday. Mom, it's Friday. How come you didn't tell me? And I go, what about the house? Well, I sold the house. So you didn't want to involve your real estate son in the sale of your house? <laughs> well, I thought you would just slow things down. <laughs> you know, so I called the agent, and I said, so did she do a disclosure statement? Yes. Well, she doesn't know anything about it because I cared for the property. And so, for instance, I put a, a, a sprinkler system so her lawn would stay nice. Did she put down that she had a backflow device? Oh, yeah, she did. Well, I know there's not one. So I said, <laughs> give me the disclosure statement, and I will help mom fill that out more accurately. But they had they had an offer pending and were closing the following Monday. My mom was out of that house on Sunday. So, wow. Um, I, you know, it's I, an interesting it's an interesting topic because we've bought a lot of houses from older folks over the years. And, and we're actually in the middle, we're listing one today that we bought, I don't know, four or five months ago from an 88 year old woman. Now, one thing that we always do, because this is a big topic and this is something especially for us, because we generally trade equity for ease of transaction, right? People that sell to us know that they're not selling it for the absolute most money possible but they're also not paying real estate commissions and they also get to pick and choose a lot of things that are sometimes more important to them than absolute top dollar. And so we make that very, very clear to them. And some people that that doesn't mean a lot and other people it does. But for the older folks that it does, we make a practice of involving their kids. It's a necessary part of the equation because, you know, we always take the adage that if people don't want to do business with us at any point in the transaction, I don't care what we've signed. We don't want to do business with them. So they could call us up the day before and just like this gal and say, you know what? I don't want to sell my house. I think I could get more money or whatever the reason is. And we say, you know, that's fine. You don't want to sell to us. We don't want to buy from you because we don't want to end up on the front page of the Oregonian or anything like that. <laughs> and we don't want to get involved in any sort of litigation about it. It's just bad business for us. We'd rather move on to the next project where somebody does want to sell to us. But for the house that we're listing today, you know, mom's 88 years old. She's got two kids and we involved the two kids completely. And I'm actually walking them all back through the house tomorrow and I'm going to show them what we did and everything. So it's just kind of part of the process, but we make it a, 
an absolute that we involve the kids, especially if they're local, and just make sure that, you know, they know what's going on. Because a lot of it, I think, you know, Richard and Steve, is that if the kids don't know what's going on, if they are involved, then all of a sudden, you know, they're counting their inheritance dollars, right? And now they think they got shortchanged. And all of a sudden, emotions start to flare up, and now you've got potential problems. So that's something that we really, really try and make sure never happens to us, and and that's one way we do it. That's really smart, Tucker. What I picked up from what you just said is you flush it out early. Like, who wants to figure out there's a problem and you have to walk away from a deal on you know in the eleventh hour after all that time and and money and investment of energy has been expended? If kids are going to railroad this transaction, let them do it on day one or two invite them into the process so that if it's going to happen, it's going to happen early. And when you haven't invested much, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. And there are, you know, there are kids that are, you know, for whatever reason, they want to be much more involved and they want to make sure that, you know, they think a house that's worth 300 is worth 500,000 and anything short of 500,000, somebody's getting screwed, namely them. Right. But then there's other people that just, you know, mom okay she got a place to go you know did she get everything she wanted out of the house okay you know good you know so it just it kind of varies i've noticed in terms of personality types and and you know who's involved but it is interesting the one that that richard was talking about where there are no kids involved and then it becomes much simpler then it's it's really just a matter of number one they change their mind about selling or number two is is it just more about money and nine out of ten times it's more about money i want to say one other thing real quick tucker to your point Generally speaking, I also am a firm believer that the kids will respond better if you are the one who is proactively reaching out to them and diffusing them by saying, hey, I wanted to involve you in this. I want to introduce myself. I'm Steve Nassar. I'm with Premier Property Group. I'm excited for the opportunity to be working with your mom or dad. I wanted to see if you had any questions or input in the process. If you do that, I think your likelihood of them wanting to railroad things goes down exponentially versus keeping it hush-hush. And then they catch wind through the parent, almost like Richard did with his mom, which that agent didn't do. And then at that point, guess what they're doing? They're thinking the worst, but they're also starting to think, well, gosh, I've got agents I could have sent my mom to. Let me talk to those agents. Let me see how we can get out of the, you know, they're, It's just starting out in the wrong manner. Whereas if you had done it the prior way, the first way, by diffusing them and taking down their guard and making them feel special and, and inviting them into the process, I think they diffuse that and they don't start automatically to think about all these other agents that they have a better relationship with. So go ahead, Richard. So that's one way agents come and they're representing, looking at selling a house for an elderly or you're an investor, you're buying a house from elderly. You have elderly buyer agents, buyers too, that can be taken advantage of. But another way that we're seeing this issue develop is the elderly person has moved to a care facility or the elderly person has done well and they've moved to Florida. And you're, they say, could you sell my house for me? And now the agent is left with, the broker is left with doing a lot more, giving a lot more documents because the elderly person doesn't really know. They're far away. They're not at the house. They're not as interested anymore. And the details. And so we see the broker, especially the brokers at Premier, the guys are so service oriented, you just want to do everything and do everything for the person to cover things they shouldn't. So, for instance, does this include an extra parking space in the condo or does it is it eligible for building? And answering questions like that for the elderly person because they're not there and not, not able to do those things can get the broker in trouble also. First, they shouldn't do it even if there was an elderly person. Second, 
elderly person is only going to understand half of what you tell them. They're far away. Everything you tell them should be in writing. You ask me this, this is what I did. Oh, I can't do that, but here's the person who can do that for you. Those are the kind of things I want to encourage as we contact becomes more remote and the capability of the person more suspect. Certainly if they're a foster care facility or some, some adult care facility, that's a red flag. It has so yeah. much. Yeah, and I've noticed in a lot of those, you've got power of attorney situations where the kids are, they have to be involved from the beginning. And for us, you know, we, that's generally one of the first things, you know, when we get a call from a kid directly and they're talking about mom's house, you know, we have to, okay, do you have power of attorney? Can you have our title company check out, make sure it's a legit power of attorney to start with? Because we've seen ones that aren't legit or they can't, you know, there's issues with them and things like that. But, you know, that, the kids have to be involved from the beginning on something like that. Whereas, you know, if, if the mind hasn't deteriorated to the point that a power of attorney has been created, you're kind of in that, you know, sketchy zone a little bit, you know? Well, Tucker, we're looking at the power of attorney is crucial. A, the title company is not going to close that transaction on that, on the power of attorney signature unless it's a recordable document. Right. So they're going to, you're going to have to get it up and, and up front. And I, I, I'm going to say, when you start looking at that, was the power of attorney given secured through abuse or through undue influence can be an issue. And if you're thinking that the parent doesn't have the capabilities, mental capabilities, and you know the power of attorney was signed yesterday, now the broker can be accused of being part of the abuse and therefore elder abuse. So just the extra precaution that every time you're dealing with someone either directly or two or three steps removed, they're the trustee of the trust, they have a power of attorney, look at that situation. Those are set up for, so we can help our parents and we can work as their trustee. We can take over and help them with the power of attorney. But they also are one of the hallmarks of has there been abuse? When was it gained? Did everybody know about it? When it was given, has there been a big change in their estate plan because of that? Those kind of issues the courts start looking at and say, you were part of that and you should have known. And that's why we get the power of attorney right up front. We start digging into it because there are, you know, we've had situations where the title company said, you know what? we're not comfortable closing this one based on the, the current power of attorney. And so at that point, you know, a lot more has to be done in order to ensure that it's a legit transaction. So, Richard, when these do go to litigation in that horrible situation, what are the factors that are looked upon to, like in your case, the one that you started this story with, this podcast with, I mean, it, you, you'd think it almost becomes a he said, she said, or maybe in your case, she said, she said, I don't know what it was, but you know, because here's the thing, if if an elderly person wants to pretend to be incapable, I bet they can. <laughs> so, you know, if, if it's to their advantage to suddenly not be you know, very cognitive, I'm sure in a courtroom they can they can play that role. So how do they how do they go back and start unearthing whether she was aware or not aware? And, and how does that come to light? Well, part of that, and we speak directly, I mean, we can spend hours talking about that proof wise, but let's just I want to focus for a moment on what brokers can do. And this is, if you don't document anything, when you start dealing with an elderly person, somebody 65 or older, you should document everything. Thanks for meeting with me. I told you this. You told me that. Those kind of emails back and forth that this is wrong, let me know, because this is how I'm going to act based on what you told me. Those are the kinds of things you have to double up. In, in our technology world, and I know, Steve, I've seen you do that. That's not hard, right? You grab your phone, you hit, you hit a, a button, and you say... I just talked with so-and-so, they told me this, let's send them a confirming email, you go back to your office, you type up the email or it's done. Or you send them a text. In this last case, the text, there was over 100 pages of text that were used in that particular case. So 
We send them a text confirming things if they have that. My mom, by the way, all she has is a cell phone now. I get more texts than I want, right? <laughs> <laughs> but and I love my mom, right? Those issues that I'm talking, thinking about is brokers need to document themselves for. In this case, the broker documented themselves about half the time. And so the, the elderly person, and I don't think this elderly person, I thought she was up front. I don't, you know, I think I can get more if this house had more market exposure. That's probably good thinking, right? To me, that proves she was not, that she was not suffering from undue influence at all. She had good thinking about her. She didn't, she wanted more exposure so she could get more money out of her house. A year and a half later, after the case actually went to, actually started headed down the road further, the house was worth about $100,000 more, we thought. And so our class damages grew with every passing moment. Now, if this had been 07, 08, the house would have been worth $100,000 less, right? So, <laughs> Nobody'd be going to court. <laughs> right, right. That would, that would have solved the problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so you talked about how does it come to light. It's if there's not enough documentation about what I was told and how the elderly person wanted to act in their decision-making process. In that particular case, the agent had documented that the person had said she she'd lived there for 40 years. The house was now too big for her. It was two stories. She couldn't go upstairs. When they did the home visit, there was almost no furniture upstairs because they cleaned it all out because she never went up there. There were things that needed to be fixed that she couldn't, she hadn't fixed as she was waiting to sell. Now she'd fixed them, right? And they were fixed and are being fixed as things were going on. So it's like, oh, you were ready to sell. It wasn't somebody who talked to you into selling. You wanted to sell. You just want more money. And so those things that were, and then when my client, oh, I'm going to fix this and this. And so I know you made an offer. So I'm going to fix these things before we close. So you won't have to worry about them. In that case, she had recognized that she was going to be selling the house and she signed an offer. So those are the things. And I have to say, my mom's this way too, you know, going out the door going, you know, I've changed my mind. I want more money for this. And not afraid to say so. We are, in my world, I'm pretty legalistic about things. I know Steve, I don't believe very well, but I hear this, it's like, I would never say that once I signed the deal because, oh, I put my name on the line. That's the deal is the deal. Well, elderly people don't have that same feeling about things. It's, and it, the deal is the deal unless we need to change it. And I don't like it, and I'm elderly, and I'm going to change it. And the idea of then her faking it, I don't think she was faking it. I think she did change her mind legitimately, but I don't think that the, the law was meant to protect her. It, it was used to protect her in this case and cost over $100,000 attorneys their fees around everybody. So that, that cost alone made that transaction irresponsible. Right? And I think the Tucker's point is, somebody says they went out, we're not going to spend $100,000 attorney's fees. Let's find out early and not go down that road. Yeah. I want to mention, you know, I haven't mentioned this yet, but I did have a transaction up in Washington it was about a year ago where we were in escrow and the seller, and she was an older lady, decided, I was representing the buyer, by the way, she decided that she didn't want to sell. She decided that she wanted to take it off the market and stay in her house. And, and this exact situation happened. I reached out to you, Richard. I don't know if you remember, but obviously you don't work Washington. So I ended up going with another attorney with our Washington premier property group that came through their preferred partnership up there. And what I learned in this, and I, I think this was a learning experience for me, and I think a lot of our listeners will benefit to understand this, that when you have a seller in contract, 
We all know that contracts, there's not a lot of outs for the sellers, right? They're pretty binding. Obviously, buyers have a bunch of contingencies and things they can use to get out. But once a seller has officially signed on the line and, and said that they're, unless they built in some you know weird contingency that we're not used to, there really isn't a lot of outs. But, but what I learned in this case is obviously there's two ways to litigate this or to go after the seller if they breach that contract. One is to sue for performance and performance being forcing the transaction. And then the other is to sue for damages. I learned in this process that it's really, really hard, almost impossible to sue for performance unless there's some kind of nefarious or sinister, we wanted more money, we're still going to sell it to somebody else. If their motivation is, I changed my mind, and I think this is probably compounded when they're elderly, I changed my mind, this is my house, by golly, I want to stay here you're pretty much going to only be able to sue for damages. It's almost impossible to go after them and force them out. So it was kind of eye-opening. And that's not to say that you won't get damages and there isn't you know, a good case against that. But for those of you who are in these situations, as buyer's agents especially, well, and for listing agents, because you might be working for a bunch of, because obviously the listing agent on that transaction did not get a commission and they did not have any success. If you're in those situations where it's questionable whether the seller is going to perform, just know that there really isn't a great mechanism to force performance. And so you could be wasting a lot of time, both as a representative of the buyer in that case or the representative of the seller. I understand that that's the advice you got about Washington. I've had the opposite experience in Oregon, partly because. We have mandatory mediation and arbitration in our contracts. And an arbitrator is going to be an attorney who's going to come in and look at that, and they're going to be less compassionate about the little, I don't mean to be disrespectful at all, the little bottom seller who made decisions to sell their house and now wants to back out. They're going to be less compassionate about that and say, but you signed the contract unless you tell me some way you were influenced or was elder abuse, we're done. And versus... In the case that we talked about, started this discussion with, they were doing everything they could to get it in front of a jury because the jury sympathy vote is real and can happen. You knew your mom signed a document and she was quite cogent to do it, but you were sitting on the jury and your, your mom's sitting there in tears about having to move out. You're probably going to vote for mom, right? Jurors see it the same way. That's their mom sitting there. Uh, their dad's sitting there who's about to be thrown out of a home. They're not going to let it happen if you get it there. So if you wind up, and that was one of the fears in that case, is they were in court. And if they wound up taking that to court and getting a jury, there's a different result, I think, than if you wind up in front of an arbitrator who goes, you know, let's look at, did you know you're signing an offer? Did you know that you're selling your house? Did you been fixing up? Did you want to move? Okay, fine, you're moving. That's why we filed it. Interesting. So, so Richard, you've had experiences with obviously tons of experience and you've seen successfully when somebody says, nope, I made a mistake, especially an older person, because that was what our case was. I've made a mistake. I want to stay in my house. I don't want to move. You've seen mediation and arbitrators force the performance. Yes. How, yeah. What's the mechanism for mistake that? It's not a good reason. That's just not going to get you there. I didn't know what I was signing. They abused me or they led me down the primrose path. They spent 13 minutes having me sign, you know, a ream of documents. That's one side. 
The other side was we spent seven hours being read every word of every document. No, I don't think so. No, and I agree with you. I mean, usually sales of homes, it's not like, you know, you woke up one day and a bunch of paperwork's put in front of you, you signed it, and you're like, oh my gosh, what just happened here? It's a process to get a house on the market, listed photos, get the house ready, put a sign in the front yard, then get the offer, then sign it. So I do get that. What's the mechanism that the arbitrators use to force the basically eviction, if you will? Well, first they start forcing the sale. We want specific performance. You've signed this contract. I don't see any abuse here, elder abuse, any fraud, any, any of those kind of things in the inducement. So the contract is valid. You must sign. If you don't sign at closing, then I will. the arbitrator can have to appoint or sign themselves. So there's a judgment transferring the title and making requiring the sale to close. The person, then if they don't sign, there's processes where the court signs for them, the house gets sold. And eventually, if they, they still are recalcitrant, in its worst case, and I've never had to go this far. The statute allows the sheriff to come out and say, we need to have you leave now. Gotcha. I've gotcha. never had a sale go like that. Usually when they when a decision's made that by an arbitrator, like there's going to be specific performance, that decision usually is the catalyst of, okay, well, I did my best to try to change things the way I really want them to be. I will move on. Yeah. And, you know, in hindsight, I'm remembering a little bit more of the conversations that we had. We had some conference calls with the attorney. It wasn't that he said 100 percent, like, you're not going to get this house. It was more about the timelines. And is this house really something you want to fight for and not buy something else in the interim as you go down this long path of seeking, you know, performance on the contract? And by the way, my clients were pregnant and had already a couple kids and were in escrow on their current house. That was another issue that layered it. So they kind of acknowledged, okay, let's go, you know, through this conversation about the process, let's go find something else. But they did end up suing for damages. And I think that's still ongoing as as I've been kind of following through with it. Well, Steve, I think that's great advice from the lawyer. I would do that very same. Look, this is the house of your dreams unless you build it, right? So go find another house. In this market, that's pretty tough. You know, there are areas in, in this town where you won't find another house or you'll be the 13th bidder on every house. But still, the litigation costs alone will exceed and the time costs. Because you know, if you go through specific performance and you get a house right away, those two things aren't going to happen. You're not going to get yeah. right away housing. You're going to be 90 to 120 days out. Yep. So your delay of that would you rather just go find another house and be closed by that? I think as a practical matter, and that's what I would encourage and strongly recommend, and my recommendation would be in writing, I recommend you walk on this. You may have damages, and let's look at what those damages are, but go find another place to live. Yeah, yeah, and that was kind of how it shook out. So yeah, just for clarification there, but cool. Any other final thoughts, Richard, as far as best practices or things you're seeing and you know, on this subject? I like your, your term best practices. That's something you use in your conversations a lot is how do we, I think one of the best practices that I can encourage also other agents is once you want into the situation, talk with other people in your office about it. Tell them this is what I got going, get a checklist going, figure out things that you need that you can do in this specific situation to protect, protect the seller, right? From themselves and protect the brokers from making a mistake because you don't want to make mistakes. And get everybody on that same page. Because when there's two eyes looking at it, you don't have the emotion of, I got this one, I got this deal going, I really want to put this together, I really want to help somebody. 
you know, the agent that wanted to help my mom did a great job helping her uh, reach out to me. I wouldn't have gotten in the way like my mom thought I would. I would have said, I just want to look at the disclosure statement. It's the only document I want to see. The rest of it I didn't care about. How much she sold for my mom at 80 years old was she knew what she wanted for her properties and I didn't care. But I think talking to somebody else in your office just to say, should I be worried? And the other agent should be saying, oh, yes. And then just kind of have a short conversation about things you need to look out for. You know, I wrote down some notes here, Richard, as like a summary, and I want to share these with our listeners. So some of the best practices and advice that I got out of this podcast are this. Pull in the kids early, even if it's just to validate that they don't they're not needed. You know, they may say, oh, I'm glad you're working with mom and dad. Yeah, they're well capable of handling everything. Thanks for reaching out. I think it's best to reach out proactively to them, not let them find out on their own document in writing summaries of conversations. So almost like every time you have a key conversation with the person, whether it's in person or on the phone, hang up the phone or go back to your office and send an email or a text to them that says, thanks for your time on the phone today per our conversation. I'm ordering photos. We're getting the listing contract together. And we will be going on the market at this such and such date to get the house sold. Same thing when perhaps an offer comes in or or some type of negotiations occur. Again, obviously, a lot of times that's already documented pretty well in writing. If you start to see red flags or you start to get some pushback either by the seller or the kids, walk away early. Don't go, don't expend your time and days and weeks and months of energy because if it's going to end, it's going to end anyway. And it's better to end early than late. And and it's better not to be in the front page of the Oregonian, right, Tucker? <laughs> That's what we all shoot not to have happen. I, if if yeah. you ask any of the agents that have been in these situations, that it, it is not good publicity. And anyone that says any publicity is good publicity is wrong. <laughs> they have cases. been accused of elder abuse, obviously. Yeah. So, And then some of the red flags that I, I observed from Richard here was just, I agree with this one. If the person is in a care home and they are your direct contact, that's a red flag and you should really be reaching out and asking for some help from kids or somebody. I would also say that them not having electronic communication, meaning they say, I don't have a phone or I don't have a computer, I don't have email or the ability to text, that would be a red flag because your ability to document things is really in conversations is going to be hampered in that regard. So Those are some of my notes, some great takeaways. I think this is excellent stuff for our listeners. We all know that the population is aging at a rapid rate, and I think we're only going to see more and more cases and more and more incidents of the baby boomers who are now getting well into their 70s of selling and downsizing, and let's make sure we cover our, our butts and do it the right way and Keep out of Richard's office. <laughs> yeah, well, especially in this hot market, you know, as the market remains hot, you know, greed remains at an all-time high, right? And so, you know, things like this, I'm not saying every case is, is greed-filled, but, you know, generally it's money-driven. And so when the market's hot, you know, everybody feels like they can get a little bit more money and, and that can sometimes get emotions to flare up and, and cause problems and, you know, land us in Richard's office or another attorney. <laughs> it's almost like the principal's office. Yes, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So, well, hey, Richard, we want to thank you for joining us. I think this is a great show, Steve. I think those are some great best practices that you wrote down there. And I think that everybody has a pretty good roadmap now or a really good roadmap to, you know, how to 
go through these types of appointments and these types of transactions in order to you know do them properly and of course remain off the front page of the Oregonian. Thanks, Richard. Thank you guys. Take care. All right. Well, this is episode 60 wrapping up. We'll see you guys either next week or the week after with another great episode. Thanks again for listening to our show and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.